Hello, and a very warm welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, wishing you all a happy, or at least a happier, New Year. But it hasn't started happily in lots of ways. Not in the US, something we're going to discuss right at the top. Or coming back to the UK, or the Prime Minister, or teachers, or pupils, or parents, or in fact, pretty much everyone. Day after the Prime Minister insisted that schools would stay open, they closed. A lot is resting on the broad shoulders of Joe Wicks, and a lot of brickbats are heading towards Gavin Williamson, Education Secretary, not for the first time. We're going to look at the vaccine rollout and whether that's going to lead to some return of normality, what normal might mean anymore. And though it's hard to look beyond the scenes on Capitol Hill and the UK wrestling with vaccination, we're going to take a step back, two metres plus at least, to just take a quick look ahead to the coming year. We've got two IFG senior fellows in the virtual studio to make sense of a frenetic start to the year. Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, uh, Happy New Year. And Kath Haddon, who leads our work on ministers and constitutional questions. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. Happy New Year. And I'm delighted to be joined today by someone who knows the mind of the Conservative Party better than anyone. Paul Goodman, editor of Conservative Home, the grassroots website for the party. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. And Happy New Year, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for all those wishes from all of you. Let's start with the US. Uh, Irresistible, really. A lot of us have stayed up all night watching agog and aghast at these scenes from Capitol Hill. Nervous comments from US allies, exultant ones about US hypocrisy from the US's opponents. Let's let's start with the UK response. Oddly, in a way, perhaps um, the strongest comment we've had so far has been from Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, the uh, one who's come out and linked Donald Trump with the violence, saying his, his comments directly led to that. Paul, what do you, what do you make of, of how the UK has responded? And how do you think an ally um, of a country like the US should respond in these circumstances? Priti Patel wouldn't be the first person, I'd expect, as someone who's very much on the right of the party to come out in these terms. If you think about it, um, Home Secretaries do get very preoccupied with law and order. So um, if this was uh, entirely spontaneous and it wasn't a line agreed by Downing Street, which doesn't seem to be, uh, I think there's a sort of natural explanation for it. And I think the situation with Boris Johnson government and um, Trump has really been that they have had to mind their P's and Q's with this unpredictable presence uh, over the last few years. And they very much wanted something out of him in terms of support for Brexit. I thought last night government moved in its sort of slow, um, wheel-grinding way to sort of come out with a position, but now they have. It seems sort of pretty clear. Trump's going and they've got no incentive to um, wave him a fond farewell. Jill, what, what do you think the UK should say? It, it's after wanting to be global Britain, um, the Prime Minister no longer, if he ever did, wants to be known as a Britain Trump. Uh, they have to they have to be close to the Biden administration to the extent they can, but also want to be upholding democracy. Uh, and yet we have these extraordinary scenes on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, watching uh, watching on Twitter last night, as one did, and on the WhatsApp group, uh, various things coming in. I was getting messages from friends in the US about how appalling things were. And the government looked a bit slow off the mark because there were comments from, for example, the German foreign minister coming in before there was anything from Boris Johnson. You did feel that the UK did need to say something uh, condemning what was going on, Um, not least because the UK has made a lot of its, you know, wanting to up 
uphold the sort of rules-based system, though, of course, the sort of uh, shenanigans around the internal market bill puts a question mark about the degree of commitment of the UK to that rules-based system. So you could argue that that made it more important they came out more quickly and denounced, not least because of that perception that they are perhaps uh, spiritually a bit closer to Trump's America than the rest of Europe. So I thought they were a bit too slow off the mark there. Various people, I think Tom Fletcher, former private secretary at number to foreign affairs, private secretary at number 10, did a sort of helpful draft of uh, saying that if number 10 couldn't think what to say, here was a suggestion. I'm not sure that, that would have gone down very well. But it is a bit difficult because you never know when things are unfolding in the evening. Can you actually get hold of people? Some of the logistics of being quick off the mark are quite difficult. It should be made easier with everybody in lockdown. But uh, but you did get the sense that, you know, were they holding back? So I think it's good now that they've come out. And frankly, they shouldn't have any problems now in denouncing the Trump administration when it crosses the line, because it is absolutely clear and has been for really a long time, even if Mitch McConnell only seemed to wake up to it yesterday, that Biden has won this election. And that the important thing now for the UK is to try to reestablish relations with the Biden administration, where we do seem, because of Brexit, because of the internal market below the potential threats, the Good Friday Agreement, we do seem to have sort of be starting from a few paces back compared to other uh, other allies of the US. Yeah, I mean, I rather agree with you about the, the being slow off the mark. Though there have been consistent comments, I, I should say, from the Prime Minister and, and other ministers about condemning the violence. But I think, as, you, as you're suggesting, that, that the gap where I, I wonder what the UK is going to say is about whether the US and its senior political leaders uphold a rules-based system. This hasn't been a rules-based president uh, after all. And you've had um, to what to many people has been one of the most disturbing aspects of this, of many senior uh, members of the Republican Party, including some in Congress, apparently for whatever reason siding with, with Trump in contesting the election result. I mean, Kath, I wonder if you, you write for us um, luminously about all kinds of constitutional things, whether you could just take us into this question of constitutional vulnerability, if you like. The US, as the world knows, prides itself on its constitution uh, uh, and yet up against a president who has not much interest in respecting political norms and and, and conventions. It it has seemed strained. You've got people saying, well, the constitution's won. You've got others saying it's been bent very severely. But what does it tell us about the vulnerability uh, of of any country up against a a leader who, um, who, who doesn't want to be bound by by rules. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a really interesting question to sort of, you know, start to unpack. And the thing that struck me last night most was for years now, my whole time at the IFG, I've been writing about, you know, the transition from one government to another. And, you know, we looked to the US and a phrase we always used was a sort of, you know, the UK, the US can rely on a peaceful and orderly transition. Uh, so all the focus was on sort of effective government issues and the politics of it and so forth. And you know, just how many times writing that, that it just didn't really, it felt quite an abstract thing to say, like, and hard to sort of explain to people why it mattered, because nobody really thought it could be any different. And I mean, that's what, what, why yesterday was so much different from just a riot, you know, following a protest was first, you know, this was about 
objecting to, this was violence objecting to an election result onto the streets and so forth. And that in itself is extraordinary. This was also violence of entering the seat of democracy, uh, the physical building and trying to stop proceedings. And, you know, that in itself was, was extraordinary. And then the third aspect was it was the degree to which, you know, the president himself, it, and it wasn't, you know, it's his Twitter comments yesterday where he, you know, tried, you know, told them to go home, but kept fueling the flames of their reason for being there by continuing to sort of, you know, say that the election was stolen from him. And also the comments that he made in a speech beforehand, telling them effectively to march on the Capitol. And, and the polls showing great numbers of people um, believing that, believing yeah. that was stolen. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't think anything will, you know, have changed their minds on that today. And actually, one of the things that struck me about Priti Patel's uh, tweet initially, because she's, she's rode back a bit this morning in some of her interviews by not condemning Trump so much, but her original tweet was the comments below from, uh, you know, people presumably in the UK and US, who still were sort of sort of condemning her for the fact that this ele- they believe that this election has been stolen and people from the UK sort of supporting that and, and um, not liking the sort of the commentary that she was trying to make. So there's a really, you know, the question for us, I think, obviously, I, I imagine the Houses of Parliament will be doing their own security review. There's a massive question about the Senate, uh, the Capitol building and, and the security there. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing for us to contemplate of what can happen and if a election is you know so deeply divisive and you end up with people not accepting that and you know we although there was a lot of false equivalency yesterday but we have seen over brexit just how inflamed passions can get over over issues but i think it's this deeper issue really about social media populism and the way in which politicians uh, relate to you know their supporters that is something that we all need to keep contemplating um in the next sort of few weeks and months and what about, about the people, you know, not just don't like a result, but, you know, accept it, whether or not. Yeah, but, but the truth, so, that's the thing. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the, the American um, yeah, media, today, never, never, never um, short of an appetite for writing grand things about. No. And, is, uh, is, is, is today they're saying, you know, well, maybe we're not Germany in the, in the 1930s, but we might be Germany in the 1920s. There's a lot. Of no. That. And I mean, the fact that you've got, you know, reports of, of members of Trump's own cabinet actually discussing the 25th Amendment and uh, removing him from office. I mean, uh, uh, ground I think there's zero of it happening. Yeah. But the fact that uh, there's any, that kind of serious level of discussion going on. But I think, sorry, just one other very briefly that we need to contemplate is just the danger of trashing uh, democratic institutions. You know, it is something that we see in political life a lot, a lot. There is a lot of cynicism about, um, you know, politics, about governments, um, uh, some of which is very understandable, the frustrations people have with governments and so forth. But the damage that can be caused when, you know, people at the very top of government start playing into those kind of messages. And we've seen, again, a lot of that, whether it's sort of judges, whether it's parliaments, the damage that you can do to people's trust in it um, from messaging at the very top. So let's turn this around. Joel and Paul, I'd, I'd love your views on this. Let's, let's, let's turn it around to the UK. And what I'm interested in is, obviously, the UK is very different. One of the things that's that's disturbed me a bit about the past few years is it has brought home to us the fluidity of the UK's constitutional arrangements, sometimes portrayed as a, as a strength and it can adapt to 
changing circumstances, but we really have had a lot of things in play, you know, where the border is between um, the government's power and, and parliament's power, uh, still with the government's uh, review of a, a, a judicial review at the moment, what the cabinet secretaries and the civil services standing is, whether they can be dismissed and on what terms. A lot, of, a lot of those things, even before you get to big structural things like uh, the status of the devolved nations and the monarchy and the and the House of Lords and things, how Paul, how how vulnerable do you think we are, um, or is it indeed a strength? Would you take a more optimistic line? Just start with America and go to yeah. here. I think um, there's clearly a case for when a president loses, he goes straight away. Uh, and you don't hang around with this rather difficult uh, intermediate period that uh, hasn't been working so well. Other than that, I can't see that there's a constitutional problem um, yesterday. There was a, a, a plain security problem and also a deep political cultural problem, which we've been discussing. But Trump is going to go. Uh, it's actually possible that his cabinet may now remove him. Uh, in that sense, those levers of the constitution are are working okay. And you can have the best constitution in the world, but if you've a deeply divided culture and a deeply divided politics with the fragmentation of social media that we're all talking about, even the best constitution in the world uh, is going to be vulnerable. Of course, our strength here, if you like, is that in America, the protest happened within the Republican Party. It captured it, so to speak, in the in the person of Trump. Here, because of first past the post, protest has not worked in that way um, in the Conservative Party, whatever people occasionally say about its members. And furthermore, the central powers of the party are very strong. So the protest, by and large, has found its way in the, first in the BNP, then in UKIP, as it later became, and, and so on. So here, I think the potential issue is, is, is different. It's the movement from outside, and it is the perennial problem of political violence. Saw that in the States yesterday, and we've seen that here. We'll never forget an MP has been murdered. Yeah, I, I'm really interested, Paul. I mean, you're sort of saying it's political and cultural, but last year we saw a number of leading conservatives, not least Theresa May, uh, even Theresa May, and then Boris Johnson, both, you could say, rubbishing British institutions. Theresa May's frustration at Parliament, something I think quite a lot of her advisers now think is an incredibly ill-judged speech, the one she made in February 2019. Boris Johnson complaining that Parliament was no good because it was getting in way, the way of his Brexit plans. We saw the attacks earlier on the Supreme Court. And we saw a government that basically was undermining a lot of the conventions we had on things like prorogation, actually stretching them to the limit. I take a completely different view. Um, if you look at America and, and Trump, there you are. We have what you saw yesterday. If you look at the continent, what you see um, over the last 10 years is, is the disappearance of very well-known parties and the rise of some, frankly, pretty sinister ones, um, like the um, the the one party. Here... I think what Boris Johnson has managed to do for the time being, and it could always go wrong, is yoke this protest that's going on throughout the world to a pretty mainstream conservative programme. So on the green issue, he's much closer to Biden 
than he was to Trump. On immigration, he's actually produced a relatively liberal policy that's uncommented on. Uh, He wants to throw money at the public services, I suspect somewhat to the Treasury's dismay. I think so far he's pulled off the trick of harnessing this dissent that you're seeing throughout the world to a tried and tested, experienced political vehicle. Uh, It's not perfect, of course, but it could be a lot worse. But Paul, don't you think there's a difference between the policy agenda, which I, I agree with you, actually, I think it's really interesting uh, the sort of policy agenda of the Johnson government, where it locates, but the willingness to, you know, a lot of the British Constitution, Cass more expert about this than me, but a lot of the British Constitution depends on people sort of playing by the rules, things like not embarrassing the Queen. The decision to do that rogue prorogation last year, you know, which they may have had legal advice they could just about get away with, undoubtedly embarrass the Queen. I mean, lots of things that you sort of say, well, decent people don't do this. The government's pushing, pushing at the limits. And I think one of the one of the problems, I mean, may have may have disappeared a bit with Dominic Cummings' departure. But one of the problems you see is ministers pushing at the boundaries of what's acceptable. I think that they may be, you know, quite sort of, you know, uh, if you like, sort of cross-dressing multiply on policy. But on institutions, they're profoundly unconservative in their willingness to undermine faith in those institutions. Of course, the government would say, I think a number of them say in private now, um, it was a gambit that you can't prove didn't pay off because they got the Irish protocol. And that was a forerunner to getting the whole deal. That doesn't mean I approve of doing it. I think it was not the right thing to do. Although it is worth noticing that the Tory rebels kept in their back pocket the possibility of doing it if the negotiation went wrong, when you might be able to have an argument about who was and who wasn't in breach of their obligations. I I don't really take the uh, view that you're putting uh, about institutions because although a Tory reverence for um, institutions is part of the mix, you've also got to respond to what happens when institutions are not working so well. A classic example is um, what the government's been engaged with with the civil service. On the one hand, uh, you had a lot of quite inflammatory um, rhetoric from the sort of Dominic Cummings quarter. On the other hand, if you read Michael Gove's speech on reform, I went back and had a look. A a lot of it could have been in the Blair speeches from the 2000s about um, making it more efficient, making uh, it, it more mathematically and scientifically able, moving people around quicker and so on. So I kind of see a thread of continuity here, yeah. as well as the, the Cummings footprints. That of course All right, so Paul, that's an important challenge, which I just want to throw finally to Kath. Uh, mm. And the challenge is, look, institutions need to change, um, and, and particularly when they're far from perfect, and, um, and we should encourage that. Yeah, um, I mean, I think at every change and say it's the end of, of end of civilization or end of our constitution or something. Yeah, I think the key difference here between uh, you know Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump is that uh, Boris Johnson, you know, largely through Dominic Cummings, perhaps also Lee Kane, that use of the rhetoric in order to campaign, um, you know, was a very popular thing. And I mean, you'd look, you go back to Boris Johnson's newspaper columns. You know, he's also um, uh, quite often a fan of of using inflammatory language. So this isn't necessarily a new thing of throwing him around. But the actions are different. I mean, Paul is right on that. With Trump, we've seen repeatedly just he does not understand the very basis 
analysis of checks and balances in the system. He doesn't understand not having all of the power to himself. Actually, yes, the actions of the Boris Johnson government when it comes to civil service reform, again, we've got, you know, another senior civil servant uh, who's been reappointed, Tom Scholar, the head of the Treasury yesterday. You know, actually, his appointments are quite conservative using the small c. Similarly, I mean, again, in terms of differences with the party, actually on the internet, on the rule of law question last year, you did see a big backlash from very senior people in the Conservative Party. So there is a difference between rhetoric and actions. I think there still needs to be a bit of reflection about the impact that the rhetoric can have um, longer term, but it doesn't mean that we should necessarily think of it as a complete equivalency here. Let's start with this schools question. Schools shut again. Prime Minister had appeared on the Sunday on the Andrew Marr show to tell the country that schools were absolutely safe and the government was determined to open them. Next day, no, they're not. Jill, what should we make of this about turn? Not even going to call it a U-turn. I mean, there's, there's abrupt change necessitated by the new circumstances or sign of a government struggling to make decisions. I think the real issue that's confronting the government now is it's apparent lack, complete lack of any sort of foresight. And it's also failure to sort of embed the simple lesson. The Prime Minister on Sunday, and what I think quite a lot of people said was a rather bad interview with Andrew Marr that he gave, was admitting that he was going to have to restrict things further, but gave the sort of not yet message and then sort of confirmed schools would go back on the Monday, only to have to change that almost instantaneously and resulting in in some people's kids going to school for one day. So I would have serious questions about what's going on in the education department. But more generally, the government seems to be continually taken by surprise from things. I think one of their real problems is, you know, you have lots of comments about Keir Starmer sort of jumping on bandwagons just a moment before, but quite a lot of things that seem almost inevitably inevitable to a lot of other people. The fact that they don't appear to have a sort of plan B on exams. So they're leaving people dangling. They've got BTECs coming up. They don't know what they're going to do about that. And that's happening this week. And you just think that maybe it's just a question that there is just so much going on, the government having decided to sort of manage COVID, manage Brexit simultaneously, that ministers cannot look more than a week or two ahead. But it seemed that ever since they identified this new variant, they were going to have to take more drastic measures. It seemed very odd that they uh, didn't do it earlier. And it'd be very interesting to know, Paul, is this a sort of Williamson problem? Is this uh, one of the things I think, yeah, I think, you know, been noted before is that does Gavin Williamson feel he can push the agenda and force decisions out of number 10? Or is he waiting for number 10? Big question marks as well over the civil servants there. Simon Case was initially brought over from Kensington Palace to get a grip on COVID, moved up to be Cabinet Secretary because he you know, managed to get the confidence of the Prime Minister. Mark Sedwell moved on as he was felt to be failing a bit in getting a grip on this. They brought in James Bowler from the uh, from the Treasury uh, to lead the sort of COVID response. But why is this system still uh, finding it so difficult to get ahead of issues and look as though it's contemplated what it might have to do in a week or two weeks' time. 
rather than being constantly surprised. The decision last week to send Parliament away, extend the recess, then have to recall it, all seems very bizarre. Paul, may I ask you just one particular thing on this? Mm. How much of this is uh, the Prime Minister listening to the right of his party, indeed very worried by it, the people saying, look, don't shut down the economy, um, the cost well, I don't, of... I don't, I don't think that's the issue. I mean, having yeah. vigorously defended Boris Johnson in the earlier part of the discussion, I'm going to be a bit more critical. I mean, if I cast my mind back to the David Cameron Premiership, Downing Street is always being surprised by events, always is. Always will be. It always happens. But um, there are awful lots of people in there who are empowered to take decisions. The Ed Llewellyns, the Annie Gills, the uh, Oliver Dowden when he was deputy to Ed Llewellyn, Kate Four. They all sort of somehow made it work. Then you went into sort of Theresa May Mark One. You had this very centralised system with Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. Then they went. And the administration became chaotic. This one, I think, is very unusual. Now Dominic Cummings was gone, and he, towards the end of his period, was really only working on COVID anyway. It's very hard to see what holds it together coherently. It's much more now like a court. You have the prime minister, sort of monarchical figure. You have his old-time supporters, his sort of the London gang, Eddie Lister and so on, um, the sort of newer supporters who came on board. But I think having worked with him for six years uh, on, on The Telegraph as a sort of you know, fellow editor, although in a sort of um, lower position, the way he works is highly intuitive and unsystematic, yeah? And I think he's capable of brilliant recovery. I mean, whatever you think of the EU uh, trade deal, it was a, a brilliant political recovery from a situation that at one point seemed very difficult. What I don't think he's ever going to do is to establish a reputation for calm, boring, procedural competence. And I think the arrival of the new chief of staff working with, with Case doesn't really seem to have made any difference. You're going to get impulsive, intuitive, contradictory decisions, and that's the way it is. Right. So, Kath, you've been writing about this this week, and and Jill was talking about lack of foresight in particular. Uh, So we've had things like uh, exams cancelled, but it not being obvious. They said, we'll let you know what will replace them. Um, And a big clamour of um, schools saying, well, look, uh, we were trying to um, do all this uh, this, uh, testing of uh, secondary pupils. That's all been scrapped uh we're now we're having to do online learning again lots of kids can't reach the online learning and the government appears to improvise and say um okay well we'll try and do something about phone charges but in the meantime any kids who can't get access uh should go back to school tomorrow and it, 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 it is this um where is this coming from? Yeah, it's really, I mean, I think you're talking about two separate things. One is um, what Paul's just been talking about in terms of the decision-making process. And I, I agree with him thoroughly that you've just got to look at the character of the prime minister and his his approach. And it does seem to come down to who he's last spoken to and how they said it to him. And unless somebody was saying, no, 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 prime minister, you must take this action now, uh, Boris Johnson seems to struggle in some of that decision-making process to sort of get through the various kind of cognitive biases that that make it hard to to do you know difficult things. But anyway, but but going to your point about the preparation, I mean, this is what I find so extraordinary, and it keeps happening again and again. We saw it around September when both schools and universities were going back. I mean, 
I find it hard to believe that there's not somebody in the de- Department for Education that was thinking, well, what if schools had to shut? What are the various things that we need to have in place? How prepared are we on them? You know, let's do a sort of quick risk assessment of all of this. And I find it hard to think that, you know, you've got this entire uh, ministerial subcommittee, COVID operations, which is supposed to be thinking about that. I mean, I can imagine they're very much focused on the vaccine right now. But we've known, you know, since the original lockdown that how schools are managing and if they had to shut down. So was it just that, you know, civil servants weren't allowed to do preparation on that? Was it that um, they were just kept being told that it definitely will not happen? Was it that there's just the, not the staff there? Was it that the Secretary of State was intervening? I, I honestly don't know what's going on. I mean, again, the you know the buck stops with the Prime Minister in as much as we've had these problems in DfE throughout. Um, a permanent secretary got moved on, shall we say, again, over it, but the Secretary of State still is there. So what are they doing to sort of find out why it keeps happening and, and what's going on in the centre that they're not throwing these issues forward? Let's turn now to the vaccine rollout, the one ray of hope, as people have called it, and the big difference from the first lockdown, as the Prime Minister has described it. And the target is two million jabs a week, but all kinds of questions over who gets it first and what happens when enough people have been vaccinated. So joining us to make sense of this is uh, one of our associate directors, Tom Sass, who's been looking into this for us. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. Tom, uh, good to have you with us. Before Christmas, you wrote a great piece saying, um, setting out the five things the government needed to do to make a success of the rollout. Um, can you just give us a quick run through that? Yeah, so I wrote the piece just as sort of first jabs were going into arms and reflecting on the fact that the sort of purchasing strategy had sort of gone reasonably well at that stage. You know, we'd managed to secure a lot of doses. But I wanted to point to what some of the sort of big problems were going to be as though that rollout began. So first of all, decision making. I mean, you have two really big parts of this, the supply, which is which sits with the business department and the vaccine task force, and then the distribution, which sits with the health department and NHS England. And you need those to be really closely aligned, you know, supply and distribution to be responding to one another in real time as we're getting more data and information. Um, and, you know, as you've been discussing with, with regard to schools, you sort of joined up coherent decision making has not exactly been the government's sort of calling card so far in the crisis. Uh, Second, delivery. You have a huge role here for GPs, pharmacies, hospitals, social care, local councils. So central government really needs to work out how to master this quite complex delivery chain. Uh, People need to be trained, centres need to be accredited. You need a lot of data to work out sort of who you've reached and also where the blockages are. And again, you know, reflecting on some of the problems with test and trace, that sort of joined upness between central and local government has not been a strength so far. Another one was communications. So clearly there's a lot of misinformation going around about vaccinations, but also a lot of legitimate questions people have about how these arrived so quickly, how safe they are, you know, whether they work against new variants and so on. So you really need to get on the front foot and explain and persuade pe- uh, people to sort of sign up to this and foster a sense of, of national effort. And also think about what messages and what messengers you need to reach different communities, and particularly communities where trust in government is a bit lower. And then finally, I think there's a, there's a sort of bucket of questions 
which you hinted at, Bronwyn, around the sort of ethical implications, you know, what freedoms should people have once they've been vaccinated? How should they be expected to sort of prove that they've been vaccinated? And, and then some of those tricky questions of sequencing and prioritisation as well. So, uh, thanks for all that. Kath, you've been looking into this as well. What counts as success? I mean, well, ultimately, you know, being able to release us from lockdowns, get back to some degree of normal life and not having spikes um, again with it. I think that the difficulty in the next few months is actually, given the the government's difficulties over all of these months in handling um, various aspects of COVID, is how much we're trusting that the rollout is going as successfully as not. And and part of that is obviously you're going to have journalists who are looking around for what's going wrong. You know, in the last couple of weeks, a lot of the focus was on different numbers from the vaccine suppliers versus uh, the expected sort of distribution of, of the vaccine and why there might have been discrepancies there and what was going on and was the government sort of misleading us or anything. Government are now going to be moving to uh, vaccine numbers every day um, from next week. So they're obviously trying to get on the front foot in terms of, uh, as they say, sort of transparency in the process so that we know it's going well. But there'll still be lots of sort of uh, focus on, you know, are we hearing stories about hard to access vaccine problems going wrong? Um, You know, they've always got to be wary about all of those. I think actually from the list that that Tom's um, just set out, I mean, on, on most of those fronts, at uh, the moment, we don't have any evidence that the government isn't sort of proceeding as well as can be hoped at this stage. Lots of risks available, except on one front, which is the cons of it. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on the overall importance of the vaccine, but there's been almost nothing about what you can and can't do when you've been vaccinated. So we've all got sort of older relatives, and uh, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but mine are asking me, well, if I get the first jab, and we know that, you know, they're going to be a lot more people getting the first jab, but not the second, which supposedly gives you a greater um, level of immunity. How safe are they? Well, there has been communication on this, hasn't it? I mean, it might not, what, might not be what people want to hear, but they've been told anything differently because we don't know if you can pass it on. You just are less likely to end up in hospital. Exactly. But it's not. But it's not just about the infection. It's also about their trust in are they now safe? And I think that message just needs to be um, a bit clearer, a bit more refined, and so mm. forth. Hopefully, it will come. Um, but you just don't see. I, I half expected the government come January to have a new comms plan in place. But I haven't seen it. But, you know, yet again, obviously, the government is often a few weeks behind us all saying, shouldn't you be doing this? Yeah. OK, I'm doggedly going to keep on calling it communications. But Tom, <laughs> Tom, can I um, come back to you just on one point, which is about the, the single doses? Uh, Tony Blair said uh, some weeks ago, look, uh, I think there should just be a single dose at first uh, to get as many people vaccinated with that as, as possible. And um, hey, Professor, it has indeed come government policy under under government scientific advice how controversial is this internationally and, and scientifically i think it is it's controversial in the sense that there's different opinions so you know chris witty and some of our regulators and doctors here seem very confident in this um, and, and sort of backing the government's decision making up but the world health organization is taking a slightly different view so i think there are this debate is going to run and run i mean one of the interesting questions and I thought it was a pretty welcome intervention from Tony Blair on this to sort of raise a, raise a question for the government that it should be considering. But one of the questions is how much this decision has been driven by 
the government just feeling that given the sort of the scale of this crisis at the moment, it just needs to get them out as quickly as possible. But you've got the scientific controversy, don't you, which the Prime Minister got a, a hard time on in a press conference this week about whether just having one dose might encourage what's called vaccine escape. That is the virus, um, because it isn't completely beaten down by people not having um, mm-hmm. uh, complete I- I- immunity it manages to break out with with with, with variants that um that don't get quashed by the the, the vaccine and, and those variants um escape if you like uh, and whether this this is going to encourage more more successful variants to get out uh, i mean there, there is some scientific um unease about this isn't there there's there's certainly a lot of unease and and i think there's there's you know several questions i mean there's also the question of as Kath was alluding to, whether people think just because they've got one one dose, that means that they can go back to behaving as normal and how you sort of continue to stress the need for adherence to sort of social distancing and so on, alongside communicating about how well this vaccine rollout is going. I think the key thing uh, in terms of building confidence in the dosing strategy that they've chosen is just to get better data. So clearly they've got a sort of hypothesis about this working and sort of so much effectiveness, but as, as long as they can test that and sort of build confidence in it, I think it's a reasonable position to take. All right. And um, Paul, quick quick word on this for you. What's uh, the main point you're watching out for on success? So there's one factor that, um, and there's so much to talk about, hasn't um, come into this very expert discussion so far, which is the, the relationship between the rolling out of the vaccine programme and whatever happens in hospitals. Because of course, if you're vaccinated, you might feel um, it's safe for you to break some of the constraints and rules and laws that are already there. But I can't help wondering that as long as the hospital caseload is going up and the deaths are going up, I would have thought that would be quite an inhibitor um, to people who feel um, casual about the rules. Uh, If we start getting anywhere near the kind of scenes that were... um, filmed in Tuscany last late winter and spring at the start of the outbreak. But, but I mean, one of the things in the government's favour is who are in the priority groups, because I don't think the sort of super spreading behaviours that people are very worried about are really a bunch of over 80s going out for massive raves. So I think the government probably doesn't immediately have to worry about about some of that, though I have to say I did a double take when Jonathan Van Tam who's emerged as one of the government's most effective communicators on this, said that even if you'd been vaccinated, you still couldn't see your grandchildren because you might spread COVID to them, where I thought the big worry was the reverse disease vector that your kids, your grandkids going to school and then coming to see their grandparents was what we were really worried about. So I slightly wonder whether the government was getting that that quite right and it might at some point be want to want to lighten up on that. I think as you get into vaccinating groups who do socialise a lot more in different ways, you might uh, might start doing that. I mean, my, my big impression of all of this is, I mean, I think the government's going to be tested by numbers. It's now promising us daily updates on vaccination mm. numbers and everybody will crawl over them. I think there will be a really interesting question as data emerges to see whether the government's made the right call on the going massive one dosing as opposed to what we'll see in other countries. It's very interesting how much criticism is emerging in the rest of Europe about some of the rollouts. I mean, this is an area where lots of governments are doing badly.
All right, well, we're going to come gently towards the end of this with a quick, quick look at the rest of the year. Had the year started in a slow and stately way, we might have uh, indulged ourselves in a podcast looking ahead at uh, the year. And we would have had a great time talking about the budget and the local elections and the devolved elections, if those are uh, still going to happen, and the, uh, the G7 summit that the UK is going to chair and the COP26 summit on climate change at the end of the year and all the stuff that we can foresee. But we've had at the start of the year, as the whole of last year gave a reminder of how little you can actually foresee. And so I just want to go round the group here and ask people for just just in in in, in that in that um, spectrum with all its imp- imperfections of, of what we we know is coming, but knowing there may be lots of other things. But what's the one thing that's really on your radar, Kath? Can I start with you? Yeah. So for me, I think it is devolution. And you know, you've said we're obviously expecting elections in May. It could be very influential, uh, not just the local ones, but also the devolved ones. I think for me, the big question is that's one area. You know, we've obviously a lot of focus with Boris Johnson on on COVID, on Brexit, the thing that got him into the job. We haven't yet heard his vision for the union. And this is, you know, an issue that's been creeping up and up and up in the agenda is, you know, is somebody at the national level able to put forward a positive view of the union, the one that isn't just defensive against Scotland wanting to break away further, that actually, you know, considers what we do as the next stage of devolution. And so... I don't know what Boris Johnson thinks on all of this. I don't know where his position is. We had that comment from him late last year um, that he then wrote back on saying that he thought devolution had been a massive mistake. Where is he going to go in terms of his rhetoric, his strategy about the union? And, and is that going to exacerbate problems or is he going to find some magic consensus that brings us all together as a country? Good point. Jill, what about you? And I have in mind that in, in our end of year podcast, you surprised a few listeners by picking out Rishi Sunak as someone who'd had a bad year. Um, pick by that and what's what's on your mind? Uh, yeah, I think I was I was more looking forward that he was, uh, was storing up problems for the future, though I think actually there's a bit of Rishi revisionism going on, not least uh, with the perception that he was one of the blocks of uh, acting more swiftly in September. Um, but I'm sure he's I will continue to rise, but I do think he's got a very difficult year ahead. But I'm going to pick out two things that I think will be really interesting apart from apart from COVID. One is, how does this Brexit agreement, which I agree with Paul, you know, a big political triumph for the Prime Minister to be able to unveil an agreement on Christmas Eve, but how does it play out in practice? Uh, it's quite an unstable agreement, potentially. There's lots of scope for sort of both sides challenging at each other. If the government champs at the bit to flaunt a lot of divergence in the EU then dips immediately into its level playing field uh, toolbox. Uh, does that agreement look okay by the end of the year? Or does it look very ropey, which I think is possible? And how does the government cope with all this massive amount of red tape that it's landed on exporting and importing businesses uh, for which the Prime Minister's new red tape challenge will in no way conceivably compensate and the second thing is can the government actually make a success of its big rhetoric on net zero and cop 26 very interesting i think that alex sharma appears to be lobbying to be relieved of his business department responsibility to concentrate solely on cop 26 and i think if how the prime minister reacts to that is going to be a token of how seriously he's really taking that because that will be a big triumph if the government can pull it up. And it's set quite fair now 
So they ought to try and try and do that. That would be a really good thing to have delivered at the end of the year. I think it's one of the more optimistic sentences of this podcast. Tom, what do you think? Well, I'm quite interested in the extent to which the government's able to sort of move back to a very positive domestic agenda. And we've heard lots about levelling up since this, this government came to power, but not a lot of detail on that, apart from a sort of small levelling up fund. It'll be interesting to see to what extent it can sort of resolve some of the contradictions in that. So, you know, clearly going to require quite a lot of investment. Doesn't seem a huge amount of appetite in the Conservative Party for sort of agreeing to tax rises and things like that. So I think that's a big uh, question that, that sort of links into the net zero question Jill raised as well. And then related to that, sort of just how much we see this sort of post-COVID debate about resilience and the shape of the state and what weaknesses the UK had, how much those start to be sort of discussed and addressed towards the end of the year. Thanks for taking us into that. And Paul, what about you? Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. Um, I think those elections are the big point of of the coming year that we can see, and other, of course, than COVID, Brexit and the economy. Um, And I suppose we should slot in a mention of the G7 as well as COP26, um, you know, one event on one side of the year and one on on the other. And um, Johnson will be very keen to get off to a good start with Biden, especially at COP26. But I think the Scottish challenge is huge because if the SNP do win a majority, however nervous about a referendum Sturgeon might feel, she'll have no alternative but to push for one, which, of course, she'll want to do anyway. Uh, And Boris Johnson has a choice between either just trying to delay and hoping that the SNP, which has all sorts of quite well-rehearsed troubles, will will fall apart. Not a very loquacious long-term strategy for saving the union. He can either do that, which is what I think he'll try to do, or the government has to do some pretty serious thinking about the union. And the question then arises, who's going to do that if it isn't Michael Gove? Very good, very good point. And I have to ask you, just finally, people ask us all the time, chance of a reshuffle? On COP26, he does need to put someone in to do that sooner rather than later. So there is a case for a a very limited shuffle where you put Sharma off to do it and you put someone else, Sajid Javid, question mark, in biz. But for everything else, there's a logic for waiting till later because you can't do it now because of COVID. You can't do it in the February half term. COVID still applies. If you do it in April, you're doing it just before the local elections, if they happen, which isn't a very good time to do it. The more you think about it, um, the more Johnson, who doesn't really like shuffles very much anyway, might be tempted to put it off until the autumn when his most of the team will have had two years and it would be pretty fair to move um, them about and rather easier. But, you know, what do I know? Well, we could mischievously start the whole Gavin Williamson debate right again, right there. But that is it for another week. My great thanks to Kath Haddon, Jill Rutter, Tom Sass, and especially Paul Goodman. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you all for listening at home. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. We recorded some great Brexit-themed events over the Christmas break, lots of them, uh, non-break for our Brexit team and the government. Do check them out if you want to understand more about what's in that deal and what's coming now. Do leave, leave us a review. We'll be back next week. And until then, you can find all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. You'll find lots and lots there to read, lots to listen to, lots to watch. 
which is no bad thing, given that we're all locked down for at least the next seven weeks. Happy New Year.